Good morning. Welcome to everybody who's with us online as well as in person at one of our three campuses. My name's Taylor. I am one of the teaching ministers and excited to continue our series, Highs and Lows. Before we do that, I do have just one, one church family moment. We are one church in three locations at West Fort Worth, North Richland Hills, and South Lake. And for our South Lake campus, today is uh, a, a momentous but also bittersweet day. It is the last Sunday uh, that we will actually call this our South Lake campus, our last Sunday worship. We have been in the process for quite a while of preparing to move to a new location that is within Keller city limits, and so it's going to become the Keller campus. Uh, and so uh, we're very excited that that's going to happen in less than a month. On August 21st, our Keller campus will open. We can celebrate that right now. It's been a journey. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and for our, our uh, Keller campus brothers and sisters who are closing a chapter today, uh, we just want you to know uh, we love you and, uh, and we see you. We know that there are, uh, there are some right now who are at our South Lake campus who are remembering uh, a, over a decade of memories uh, on that property, in that building, special worship moments and uh, kids' performances and events and just different things that have happened um, in, in that building and in that space. Um, but also there are other members who, who remember even beyond uh, the time of being the Hills Campus when it was the South Lake Church. And so for those who are carrying memories from the last decade and for those who are carrying me memories from many decades, we, we honor you. And we want to take a moment as a whole church to thank God for the season that has been and to ask God to pour out his favor and his spirit on the season that is to come. As our Keller campus minister, Chris Hatchett, has said, um, the next three weeks, if you did the math and you're like, wait, if this is the last Sunday in this building and the new building doesn't open in Keller until August 21st, there's three Sundays in between. And, uh, and what our, our Keller team is doing uh, with elders and with members and, and uh, volunteers is taking these three weeks to do two things. Number one, to prepare at a practical level uh, with this new building and kind of kicking the tires and getting things ready. Even, even on opening weekend, there's still going to be a little bit of construction happening, and so there's, there's some things to get ready for. But as, uh, as our Keller campus minister, Chris Hatchett, has said, the other thing we're doing is we're continuing to ask God, what preparation are you doing in us to be ready to love and serve and seize this, this clean slate, fresh opening opportunity for our neighbors and friends and our surrounding community? And so let's take this moment right now and pray. God, we come to you praising you as the one from whom all good things come. So thank you. Thank you for the good things uh, that came through the season of being the South Lake campus of the Hills Church. Thank you for that building, for the provision, the space where uh, conversations could happen, where the, the word could be studied and preached, where worship could be lifted up and prayers could be spoken over each other and lifted up to you. God, for the people who were baptized in that building, who claimed faith in Christ because they heard the gospel for the first time, for the marriages, marriages that were saved, restored, for, uh, for the for the, the friendships that were, were, were born or started with a, a shake of the hand or an introduction. God, we thank you for uh, the rich time of the last uh, 10 plus years, 11 years as the South Lake campus. And Lord, as we look ahead, we ask, would you 
Would you please, God, show your favor on our brothers and sisters as they make this move? Would August 21st be this this incredible landmark where from there we just saw you move because of the people you brought, because of the the, the people who are far from you that were reached and, and put Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, we want to see that. And I ask that, that your Holy Spirit would, would fill afresh all of our brothers and sisters who will be part of the Keller campus. Bless them. We bless them in Jesus' name as they make this season of preparation. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue this series called Highs and Lows, the premise of the series is that God has made us as emotional beings. It means we're going to spend a lifetime dealing with how we're feeling. And when I think about emotions uh, in, uh, in movies, the, the first movie that comes to mind came out in 2015. It's Pixar's animated feature film, Inside Out. Does anybody remember this? Has seen this movie? Show of hands at our campuses real quick. Yeah, we got, got a fair amount. Um, so Inside Out told the story of five emotions working in the control center of an adolescent girl named Riley, in the, in the brain uh, of an adolescent girl named Riley. If, uh, if you're on podcast and you haven't seen this movie, that's really confusing. We've got a picture right now that's, that's kind of giving a better picture, uh, a sense of how this played out. Because these, these emotions were joy and fear and anger and disgust. And who's that little blue emotion? Sadness, that's right. Now, in the movie, Joy is unquestionably the star of the show. She gets the most screen time. But sadness gets a fair amount of play in the script as well, along with the other emotions. And the Psalms, as the prayer book of God's people, have a similar balance. Celebration and joy, which we, we looked at last week, really, really is, is the dominant mode of worship for Israel and for the church today. Roughly speaking, if you look at the 150 prayers and songs that make up the book of Psalms, there are 60% of them are in what you'd call the highs, those mountaintop moments of worship. But 40% of them could be described as being in the lows of dealing with the struggle and pain and suffering of life. So a 60-40 split for the songbook of Israel. Meanwhile, an ACU professor named Glenn Pemberton looked at some of the songbooks of uh, of a few different uh, tribes in the American church. The Baptist hymnal, the Presbyterian hymnal, and songs of faith and praise from the churches of Christ. For all three of those songbooks, for all the songs they included, there were about 80 to 85% of those songs that were in the highs, with only around 15% in the lows. Dr. Sun Chang Ra did a similar study, not with songbooks and hymnals, because we're kind of past that. We just got stuff on the screen. But with, uh, with uh, CCLI, this, this kind of modern way of, of tracking and keeping up of what is especially uh, um, American churches, what are they singing? And the stats are even worse, where it's more like 90 to 95% in the highs, and, and only a 5 to 10% would be in the lows. As a result, a lot of Christians don't feel equipped to know how to be in the lows with God. Dr. Ra actually talks about this concept that is in fitness, and it's called, uh, it's a super effective way to try and get in shape. It's called muscle confusion. And admittedly, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's what I've been practicing for a long time, because 
I, I wait a few months, I go, you, you know, you go to the gym and my muscles are very confused why we're there. And then I wait a few more months. Like that's one, but actually the style for those who are part of CrossFit or, or different, different uh, types of uh, workout plans like that, muscle confusion is this idea of continuing to move and stretch different parts of the body. And, and here's the deal. I believe what's going to happen in this message is some spiritual muscle confusion because we're going to go down into the lows of the Psalms. And for some of us, if, we have, if, we, if our concept of church is that we're used to having, man, we like having 85% of what we sing and talk about more in the highs, more in the mountaintops and the God, I trust you and it's going to be great and you're, you're awesome and those moments are, are valid. They're part of worship. But, but at the same time, if we don't know how to be with God in the lows, it means that when life brings us low, we kind of have to leave real life to go worship God. And what God actually invites us to do is to worship him and pray to him in the midst of the lows. That's what we're going to see as we survey some of the forms of prayer. So if you're taking notes, we'll start here. The lows in the Psalms teach us to tell God, this hurts. Just at, at their most basic, these songs and prayers are an expression of pain to God. Psalm 31 verse 9 says, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. In Psalm 6, the psalmist writes, I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. <laughs> Through some of the Psalms, this is just, they take their time to do this. I've been convicted reading through some of these to realize, oh, I want to rush past the expression of pain. I would rather get to the solution. I would rather get to some of the other ways that we'll see uh, the, the, the psalmist pray in the lows. But there is for these songwriters, because they have and pursue an authentic relationship with God, they don't feel the need to rush past, God, this just hurts. And at length, they describe the kind of struggle that they're having. They name their pain and what it's making them feel. I had a friend who, um, he, he uh, was in counseling. He happens to be a high-level leader in his organization. And uh, his counselor gave him an assignment. Because this guy was always thinking about solutions, always, always thinking about, all right, what do we need to do next? And the assignment was for somebody who's facing some of not just the highs, but the lows of, of leadership and of life, he had a, an assignment to make one phone call. It was a 15-minute phone call once a week with another high-level leader who was meeting with the same counselor. And they had to, for 15 minutes, just name a hurt, something hard that they were facing, a point of pain in their life and what it was making them feel. And the only rule for this 15-minute call was that they were not allowed to offer any solutions or advice to the other. My friend told me, he's like, man, after years and years of being wired for solutions and for, you know, I'm not going to be a complainer, he said, the idea of this call at first was absurd. We're just wasting our time. What are we doing? But he said over the weeks that he did this, that 
that call became a safe place. A place where he, could, he knew he would be heard by someone who was focused on being present with him in the pain. Not listening and immediately leaving mentally to try and figure out a solution. We need to understand that the lows in the Psalms show us that God is willing to be present with us in our pain. That he, he's not going to try and rush us past whatever we're working through, whatever we're struggling with, but he'll, he'll be present, he'll be patient, he will listen. But as we begin to express that this hurts, what often happens is, is for the psalmist, it's not only that it hurts, it's that it leads them to a place of confusion. And the next kind of prayer that we see in the, th throughout the psalms, the lows, is I don't understand. Like, I, I, I'm in pain, and this hurts, and so I'm feeling wounded, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm feeling defeated, but God, this is making me confused. I don't understand. And in that confusion, the psalmists ask a lot of questions when they are in the lows. Psalm 10, verse 1 says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 60 Verse 10 asks just flat out, have you rejected us, O God? Or Psalm 35, verse 17 asks, how long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? These questions have an accusatory tone to them, don't they? And there may be some of us that need to understand the Psalms open the door for us to come into God's presence and ask things that may sound accusatory of God. That may be us throwing our pain back at God. There's an expression, hurt people, hurt people. And sometimes what happens is in our pain, we come into God's presence and in our confusion, we throw things at God that, man, as I, as I read these and think about how does God feel hearing this? I'm like, I don't know that you're allowed to pray that way. Some of us need to understand that a healthy and emotionally mature relationship with God means that we can come into his presence and say what sounds like the wrong thing, and God calls that worship. That God puts that in his songbook, his prayer book, because these questions are actually, the confusion is born out of a belief that God really cares it's because I have faith in you that I'm asking these questions. So God, if you care, how come this is happening? And this is the kind of praying that happens in the lows. And for anybody who may, may be like me, struggle with, I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a complainer. I don't want to just, just, you know, just stay in the lows and be, be down and frustrated with God. Here's what we need to understand. When we're willing to do this with God, something's happening in us in our relationship, our relationship is deepening with God because our highs are hollow if we can't be real in our lows. There will be a point, maybe it's not today for you, there will be a point where you need these kind of prayers, where you need to be able to know you can ask God these questions. You don't have to clean up emotionally and try and put on a face in front of God. No, we can actually, we can ask these things of God. And when we do, here, I once, I once heard somebody say it like this. 
Complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm. The shift maybe for some of us is that we just need to stop complaining about God. We need to complain to him. We need to stop asking other people questions that they won't have the answers to. We need to come and bring those questions to God. But as we do that, and even as the psalmist asks, why do you stand far off and do nothing? What eventually happens for the songwriters in their prayers is that they finally say, God, do something. God, will you show up? Will you act? If I'm praying because I believe you could do something, then I'm going to ask you to intervene, Lord. This is the do something prayers, the rescue us prayers, the help prayers. These are prayers as protest. Because what we're willing to say to God is an indication of what kind of relationship we have with God and what kind of faith we have in him. And so the do something prayers are, are us contending. And I heard somebody put it like this. We are going to battle with God for God. Look, I'll show you in, in, in Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. The psalmist's appeal to God based on his character and his reputation. There's even some spots in the psalms that make me uncomfortable because they look like bargaining with God. God, who's going who's gonna to worship you from the casket? If you, if you let me die, man, you're, 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 you're losing a worshiper and some other people are going to say, well, his God didn't do anything for him, so God, please do something. There's others who they appeal based on not only God's reputation, but also on who he has revealed himself to be. Look at Psalm 69, starting in verse 16. It says, answer me, Lord. Live at our campuses, read these next few words. Out of the goodness of your love. This is the appeal. In your great mercy, turn to me. Don't, don't hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. Oh, when we appeal to God out of the goodness of his love, out of the fact that he's shown himself to be merciful. Those are moments when we're saying, God, I, I may not feel your love right now. And I may not see how your mercy is at work. But I, I'm choosing to name even what I'm struggling to believe. I'm naming your love so that you would show it to me by acting right now. I'm naming your mercy so that you would reveal it to me through some kind of help, comfort, deliverance, rescue. But listen close. You can only appeal to who you think God is. And sometimes in the lows, where we get is we, we're like, man, I, if... If we are living off of others' faith and don't for ourselves, can't confidently say, is God loving? Does God care? Has God said that he's merciful? Then it's hard to appeal to someone that you don't believe in. It's hard to appeal to a version of God that you're not even sure is real. 
And my prayer for myself and for our church is that in the lows, Holy Spirit, would you plant in us your words so that even in the depths of our pain, hurt, confusion, we can appeal based on who you are, even if I don't feel like, like you're loving right now. I don't feel like you're merciful. I don't see how you're faithful in this, but I can appeal to it while I pray and ask you to show up. And for the psalmist, they move from that to something that I didn't realize how, how prevalent this was in the psalms, but I'm going to categorize it like this. Deal with them prayers. It, it's, not, it's not but a few psalms into the whole songbook that you start seeing the wicked and enemies. In fact, Psalm 1 names the wicked. There, there are these categories of people for the songwriters that they see as enemies, either personally or against God's people or against God himself. And so throughout, throughout the Psalms, man, you, you cannot get away from them and what they are up to. So you hear the songwriter say, bring, in Psalm 7, bring an end Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. Or in Psalm 17, starting in verse 9, protect me from wicked people who attack me, from murderous enemies who surround me. They are without pity. Listen to their boasting. They track me down and surround me, watching for the chance to throw me to the ground. They are like hungry lions eager to tear me apart, like young lions hiding in ambush. Arise, Lord, stand against them and bring them to their knees. Rescue me from the wicked with your sword. These deal with them prayers get a lot uglier than this, by the way. They... They go to the kind of lows that aren't just fearful, they are vengeful. They are hateful. And I, I, I've struggled reading this thinking, who? I mean, sure, back then, for, for David and the other songwriters living during, during a day and age with, with a type of warfare and, and constant jockeying for national position against other nations, Sure, I guess you could pray these prayers, but what are we supposed to do with these kind of prayers today? Because for a lot of us, we might have a, a frustrating coworker or a, an annoying neighbor, but a lot of us, I don't know that we could say we have enemies. So I started asking this week, God, who, who could pray these prayers? And I started realizing, oh, for generations, there have been followers of Jesus who needed these prayers because they experienced violence. They experienced oppression. They experienced, like the Israelites, being taken from their homes to another place and living in an exile. In our country, for generations, the black church has needed these prayers. In slavery, under Jim Crow, and with the lingering racism and hatred and violence that exists in our country. I thought about friends who are Asian American, Pacific Islanders, and the, the rash, the stain of, 
violence against that specific community over the last couple of years that have gone viral online and thinking, man, for, for one of my friends, when, when he's praying and thinking about his family, these are prayers that he might feel he needs. But, but zoom out further than nationally, just looking globally, and I think, you know who could pray these prayers? The persecuted church. There are followers of Jesus around the world who know what it's like to pray these prayers because they have experienced violence against them because of their faith. I've heard Indian brothers and sisters who, spreading the gospel in their country, have experienced so much persecution and hatred. It's true not only in India, it's true in, in North Africa, in the Med Rim, in the Middle East, many different places around the world where, where Christians are persecuted against. And they need these prayers. It's true, as a church, we have a, a goal of, of supporting 25 different asylum-seeking families. Some of those families who are, some who are, some of these families are believers, some are not that we get the chance to support. But they need these prayers. And you know what? I realized every single follower of Jesus can use these prayers. Because our real enemy, our battle, Ephesians 6 says, is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the powers, the authorities, the kingdom of darkness. Oh, we, we have an enemy. And just like that psalm said in, in 1 Peter, the, the, the enemy is described as a roaring lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour. So if you find some of these prayers in the psalms and go, how can I pray these? No, we can pray these as followers of Jesus and we can pray these with people who are experiencing violence and oppression. Part of the challenge is for some of us, we just individualize so much of how we read these psalms when part of the gift that these psalms gives, give us is that we get to pray with and for those who need these prayers. But there, there is a lower point God, help me to preach this part. It goes beyond hurt. A prayer that says, God, this is more than I can bear. God, I can't go on. This is despair turned into prayer. Psalm 38, the psalmist says, I am exhausted, completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. But as you follow the psalmist, you see in verse 17 where this is coming from. I am on the verge of collapse, facing constant pain, but I confess my sins. I am deeply sorry for what I've done. Sometimes in the Psalms, what we can't bear is actually related to what we have done, to our own sin. We can't bear the wrongs we've done, the, the, the hurt that we've done to others. We can't bear the, the secrets we've kept or the ways we've tried to stay in control of a spiraling life 
instead of surrendering to God. And maybe, maybe that's somebody listening to me right now. Maybe you are at a place where you have been carrying something. Some of your own choices, some of your, your own ways that you've hurt other people, ways that you have lied or tried to cover up. And, and I, I want to acknowledge, maybe, maybe for you, that's, that's something that's not, that's not just something you've done. It is a habit you have developed or an addiction that has taken hold. As a church, we have made a place for hurts, habits, and hangups called Celebrate Recovery. It happens on Thursday nights at our NRH campus. And, and maybe for you, your step isn't just that you need to tell somebody, it's that you need to show up and begin to work through how, how have I been carrying this and now how does, how does this have me in bondage? And for, for somebody else, maybe it's actually that you're just still carrying your sin, carrying your guilt. And in a message in the lows, part of what we need to hear is that God met us in our lows by coming down into the lows of our life, into pain and suffering where he would be victimized, where he would experience uh, the violence and oppression of others, where Jesus himself would take your guilt and my guilt and the sins of the world, and Jesus would bear that and carry it to the cross and die on the cross, condemning sin in the flesh, paying for, for the judgment you deserved, and then on the cross, he said, it is finished. Amen. Friend, I don't know what you're carrying, but you need to hear. You don't have to carry that anymore. Jesus carried it for you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He bore it so you don't have to. And so maybe, maybe you need to have a moment of confession today and say, Jesus, I, I, I want to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. Or maybe your moment is con of confession is you already believe in Jesus, but you just need to repent. Say, man, I got, I got to let go of some stuff. But the other kind of overwhelmed prayer isn't, it's not the result of sin. The lowest psalm is a loss of hope. Psalm 88 says, I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your care. From my youth, I've suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's the end of that prayer. There is no resolution. It goes down into the valley and finds a cave. And yet, God put this in his prayer book so that at 
our lowest moments, even in moments when we have no hope, God has made a way for us to know he sees us. He sees you. Because even a hopeless prayer is itself an act of hope. Grief and sadness, they're part of, they're part of the, the way that we not only name what we're feeling and turn towards what is hurting or, or what we're struggling through, but it's, it's part of the healing process. Even when it hurts so bad, it doesn't feel that way. In Pixar's Inside Out, sadness not only gets a fair amount of screen time, but plays a critical role. At a moment where this adolescent girl, Riley, has begun to try and suppress her feelings and then she's cutting off relationships around her. And it's not until sadness is allowed to be at the driving seat and help this girl feel what is weighing on her, that in that pain, that begins the process of reconciliation, of restoration. It deepens her relationship with her family because they meet her in her worst moment. And that's what God does for us in the lows. I think that even happens in the midst of some of our lowest prayers. Because the majority of the laments and the lows in the Psalms, they don't, they don't like Psalm 88, they don't just, just finish saying, all right, it's all terrible and there's no hope. No, that just wouldn't be faithful to what happens over and over in the Psalms, that there is this turn, this ramp of praise, a resilient, defiant, God, I'm gonna choose to turn back and look at who you are in a lot of the lows, faith gets the last word. I saw that in a powerful way last month. It was the service for Brenda Martin, a beloved member of our NRH campus. Her husband, Phil, serves as an elder. So many wonderful things shared about Brenda in that service, about her faith. And then at the end, something happened. Her daughter Amy got up on stage and looked out at friends and family on the day that her mom is being remembered. And Amy referenced what God had taught their family in the Lowe's because this wasn't the first time that they were grieving someone who was in their household. Amy's brother, Chris, had tragically died in a car accident when he was 16 years old. And so on the day when she is honoring and celebrating her mother's life, Amy was led by God to get up on stage and she said these words, our family has been hit really hard by loss before. But this is what we do know to be true. God is still on his throne. My mom and my brother are free. And they aren't just in a better place. They are in an indescribable place. God is so good. He will never leave us and he will carry us through. And our faith in Jesus assures us we're going to see her again. 
But then Amy looked out at everybody and she said, but what do you do about right now? What about this practical moment right now, this very minute and all of those that will come to be? When it's really hard to breathe, when your heart is so heavy, when your soul is so weak, we have found that the answer is to worship. And that's where God gives us strength. And Amy shared that shortly after Brenda's death, the family reconvened. And Phil opened God's word to the place where David, who's credited with writing so many of these laments, found out that his son had died. And after David heard the news, he, he got up, washed himself, he ate, and then he entered the house of the Lord to worship. And after sharing that, Amy said, that is how we're gonna move forward without Brenda. And it's how you're going to move forward in your grief as well. And then at the end of this service, they just had all of us stand at this funeral and sing. And in a moment, we're going to do that. But first, I want all of us to collectively lament together by reading and praying the words of Psalm 13. At all of our campuses, I'd invite you to stand right now. read these words. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Bow your heads. Oh, Jesus. You see each one of us, some who are in the lows right now. God, would you be their refuge? We appeal to who you are. And God, for, for others, for all of us, would you stretch us to trust you that we can come raw and vulnerable and transparent. And in your presence, if we bring that, whatever that is, that that's a prayer that honors you. That that is an act of worship that says we still trust you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.